All right. Good morning, Ridge Point Church. How are you doing this morning? Good. Man, I love the energy here this morning. If you want to turn to the person next to you, give them a fist bump and say, I'm glad to see you this morning. I love the fact, I think we do that about every week, and every week someone's laughing, like it's a surprise. Listen, we love to do that because we want to be an encouragement. I think most people uh, just want to let them know there's somebody, uh, wants want to know there's someone around them, and there's someone to be an encourager, and today we're actually going to look at scripture, one of my favorite encouragers in all the Bible. We'll get to that a little bit later, but we're really glad you're here. I remember at the beginning of the summer saying, hey, this summer is going to fly by. And now for our students, this is their final weekend. For our teachers, they're reporting back this week. And it feels like, man, this whole summer just flew by. It's kind of a, a good thing for parents. We're kind of like taking this breath saying, all right, teachers, we're tagging you all back in. Uh, but it's also a, a sad thing as our kids grow up. We're like, man, we only got those few years to be able to enjoy that summer together. And, and, and so hopefully you're still going to be able to enjoy the summer, enjoy the time with family and all that. But also as we start to get ready for the fall, uh, we start to launch just not just back into our fall schedule of things, but also we love to talk about vision. We believe that as a church that if, if we don't have vision, if we don't have kind of a North Star for what we're kind of aiming towards, uh, then we don't know when we arrive if we're actually reaching out at that goal or not. And so every year we like to do this, but especially as we launched into this year, we did a series we're calling 10-4. And the reason why we called it 10-4 is because for a couple of us, or Chris and for myself, we came on staff here at Ridgepoint Church 10 years ago this past Wednesday. So for us, this was kind of like a culmination of, man, we've been here 10 years. And, and also as we did that, we started talking about the vision and also the vision path. And we really have like four core values that we've held on to as a church. And, and, and we believe the vision doesn't change year to year, but the path to get to that vision often does. And so we're starting to talk about this idea of what does the next decade look like for us? What does that look like for us as a church? Uh, and, and then ultimately, as we start to look at the big vision saying, man, this is what we want to accomplish, how does that start to mitigate its way into our life where we can say, okay, what about a personal vision for our life? What does that look like? Not, not for me as the pastor, but as, for me as, as JJ. What does it look like to have a personal vision for my life? And, and what does it look like for you to have a personal vision for your life? And ultimately, our desire is to say, man, I want to make sure that the vision that I have for my life aligns with God's plan so those two things can come together. I think a lot of times we come in and we start to set goals. We start to say, man, this is what I want to accomplish in my life. And, and I love the fact that we had a, a wedding uh, that just happened this past week, and there's another wedding that's coming up. And I love meeting with couples as they start to plan out, this is what life is going to look like once marriage happens. I love the part of the counseling where we talk about those things. But if we just kind of willy-nilly pick ideas and say, well, I'd love to do this, and then I'd love to do this, and the plan or the vision that we have for our life doesn't align with God's vision it leaves us like feeling empty and, and, and not fulfilled. But when the plan I have for my life aligns with God's vision for my life, that's where I start to achieve satisfaction. That's where I start to say, man, this is, I really feel like there's, there's life, there's vitality, there's, there's purpose to, I'm not just meandering trying to figure out how life is supposed to be, but, but I figured out these are the things that I value about life. Now let me pursue those things instead of just accidentally stumbling upon those things from time to time. So it really is developing a personal vision so that when we collectively get together, we can say, okay, now as, as a church, we want to start to fulfill the vision God's given us for, for us individually, and that if we're aligning together the, God, the vision God's given us collectively, to say, now let's go out and try to accomplish that vision. 
And so he said, just by way of review, I want to share this real quick. We'll go through these real quickly. But we said, as a church, our vision, this was kind of etched in stone about 14 years ago. But we, we said, this is our vision as a church. Our vision, the current, is to, we exist to lead all people in a growing relationship with Jesus by being a church, unchurched people love to attend. Now, that's the vision. That's what we're trying to accomplish as a church. But the path to that vision, we said over the years, there's really four core values that we've established. Number one, we never want to define people by their lowest moment. Now, again, the vision stays that's timeless. The path to that vision is timely. That changes as, as culture changes, society changes. The path to that changes. So the first one, we don't define people by their lowest moment. The second one, we talk about this a lot as a church. We'll be talking about this in a couple of weeks. Life is better together. We believe that even though we're living in a society where we're connected, we're also incredibly disconnected. And it's really easy in the, area, in the era of social media to have a lot of social friends and people that we talk to via text message or, or online, but actually face-to-face contact to encourage each other. Those type of relationships are dwindling. More people feel alone today than ever in, in the history of our country. We, we've become so connected that we've become disconnected. And so life is better together. It's been one of those things that we cling to as a church. Number three, you can't outgive God. When it comes to our service, when it comes to our, our finances, that, man, God has given us so much, especially living where we live. God has given us so much. You can't outgive God. And the final one is that we always bring our best. There's never a down Sunday for us because for every week there's a chance for people to come into Ridgepoint Church and to experience Jesus for the first time. And so we can't afford to have an off Sunday that every week when it comes to people serving in guest services, people serving in the booth, people in the band, people in the kids area, group leaders, that every week is significant. Every week matters. And because of that, we always bring our best. Now, we said from the very get-go that, that this is kind of our, our vision, and this has been our established vision path for how we get there. I still cling to these things. I still think these things are really important. But today, two things are going to happen. Number one is I'm going to begin a conversation that, that I'm hoping that is discussed among our church leadership, among our, the rest of the church, to say, okay, what does that look like now for us for the next 10 years? Uh, we took a long time figuring out those four things and what that looked like and, and wordsmithing those things and getting those things just right. Today, I'm really just beginning a conversation of what that might look like. But I'm also challenging us. You see, next week, we start a series called Uncomfortable. This has been about the vision of the church. These are the, 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 the vision that we have, but also the vision path, what we're proposing as these are some new ideas we want to at least kick around. But also, I said this last week, and this is really important. The big idea going back to last week was this. Vision, if left on paper, isn't vision. It's a dream. In other words, we can put on a piece of paper, hey, here's our vision statement. It looks real nice. We've talked it through. But if it stays in the paper, then it isn't ever actually the vision. We need to spend more time not talking about what the vision is, but actually accomplishing the vision. Andy Stanley's principle of the path that carries that idea that direction, not intention, determines that destination. And so it's saying not just leaving it on paper, but taking it off paper and saying, now here's how we partner together to make sure that that, that that vision is starting to be fulfilled. And so he said, the vision stays the same, the vision path we start to kick around, and that at times it's okay for us to be a little bit uncomfortable. How many of you are okay being a little bit uncomfortable from time to time? Listen, we're starting a series next week called Uncomfortable. <laughs> so I'm glad that some of y'all think that way because here's, and this is going to be a big idea throughout this series, we don't grow when we're comfortable. 
like when it comes to phys- the physical nature of our body, if I'm eating all the foods that are comfort foods, if I'm, if I'm not pushing myself to excel physically, I'm not growing. At least I'm not growing the way that I want to grow. <laughs> Some of y'all can identify. It's also true when it comes to our spiritual growth. Like we want to sit and be comfortable and say, this is where, this is where I want to reside because this is where I feel safe and, and I get that. But there's some steps we need to take. Chris just talked about baptism. For some of us, the next step we have to take, and I know that it's scary and you're up in front of people, but man, Jesus says, here's, here's the purpose of this. Romans 6 says that as Jesus was dead, buried and rose again, so we too are put under water and we're raised out of the water to walk in the new life. That's what baptism is a picture of. We're going to talk a lot about that stuff in uncomfortable, what it looks like for groups and service and, and all those things, but uncomfortable is coming. But today, for part of the message... And I want to prepare you that this is coming. I want us to get to a spot where we're a little bit uncomfortable because I believe that growth happens when we're uncomfortable. And there's a conversation that has to be had right now where we're at as as a people, as a country, that we have to say it's okay for us to be a little uncomfortable because we have to grow, we have to get better in this area. That's coming a little later, but I want to prepare you that it is coming. But for right now, if you have your Bibles, open up to Acts chapter 9. We're going to begin to talk a little bit about what's happening in the book of Acts chapter 9. The reason why throughout this short series we've been looking at the book of Acts is because the book of Acts is the history of the early church. Now, if you don't have Bibles, the word's going to appear up on the screen in just a second. But the book of Acts is literally Jesus had died, he rose again, he's getting ready to, to ascend into heaven, and it's beginning this era known as the church age. Before this, there wasn't really the church. Now the church is being established and the church is being sent out. Here's the thing that I love about this is all the early disciples knew about Jesus was, man, he was dead. Like before he died, he was really powerful. He did miracles. He taught with authority. But then he died. And then I saw him three days later, and and he was risen again. And he changed my life. And that's all that I know. I don't know a lot of theology. I don't know a lot of context, but I know these things about Jesus. He was powerful. He taught with authority. He performed miracles. Then he died. And by the way, he told everyone he was going to die and rise again, and he pulled that off. And now because of that, he changed my life. And that's all that they knew. They didn't have church conferences to go on how to grow a large church. They didn't have podcasts to listen to. They didn't have books to read. They didn't have anybody else to build a foundation on and say, hey, I saw this church down the road, and this is how it's working. All they had was this story. Jesus was dead, he's alive, and he changed my life. And they went with that message, and that's all that they had. They didn't have a political purpose. They didn't have a way to bring social justice into this. All they knew was Jesus was dead, he's alive. And because of that, my life has been changed. And literally, we read the book of Acts, and they're going around with that message, spreading that message, and thousands of people coming to know Jesus. Now we sit in context, I don't think there's anything wrong with those things, but we sit in a context of where we have all of those resources at our disposal. If you go on Amazon today, you can find a bunch of books on here's how to grow the church, you can listen to podcasts, you can go to these incredible conferences, and we've done all of those things, and they're all great and they're all powerful. But at the end of the day, the only thing that changes people's lives isn't a conference, it isn't a book, It's Jesus himself. 
And they went with that message and said, man, we want to make sure that everybody knows this, that literally anybody can be reached with this message, including the people who we think know, that, that nobody could ever reach them. One of those people is a guy that we come to know as the Apostle Paul. Now, if you've been with us for the summer, we've actually been reading through a book here that's in the Bible that he wrote. It's a book called Philippians. It's actually a letter he wrote to a church in Philippi. In it, he says, here's what my life used to look like. I used to depend upon my religion, the stuff that I did, thinking that I was a good person. See, prior to him really meeting Jesus, he thought it was all about him and him following these set of rules. And in fact, he was so threatened by the early church and by the message of Jesus that he was part of those who killed Christians. And so we actually read one of the accounts of his coming to realize who Jesus actually is after having fought for Jesus, all of his life, fought, fought against Jesus for all of his life up to this point. In the beginning of, the, beginning of Acts chapter 9, it says he's about to go to Damascus. And he's asked the high priest, I want to go to Damascus because there's this uprising of Christians and I want to go and I want to get them arrested and, and I want to get them to, to be beaten because of it, possibly even killed because of this message that they're spreading. See, for the really religious people of Jesus' day, they were threatened by this message and Paul was one of them. And so Paul is literally on the road to Damascus saying, asking the high priest, can I go, can I have permission from you to go and arrest the Christians that are there and to bring them back? But it's on the road to Damascus that Paul actually encounters Jesus. And his life has changed. We don't have time to read all of that story. But I want to pick up in verse 18 right now. When we read what happens, once he realizes, it says right before that, he accepts Jesus, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And verse 18, it says this. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. And he regained his sight. He'd been blinded up until that point. He regained his sight. Then he rose, and immediately he's baptized. He'd, he hadn't been eating, he hadn't, like he'd been in this season where he encountered Jesus and, and he's blinded and, and he, he's fasting and, and here those scales are removed, he can see again, he's baptized and it says in the next verse, he takes food and he was again strengthened because of that. And then it says, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Now if you could imagine this, Paul is on the road to Damascus specifically to go and arrest the disciples that are there. On the way, he encounters Jesus, and he becomes one of them. And so it says in this, the, the latter part of this verse, he's hanging out with those same disciples who only days earlier he planned on arresting. Now he's hanging out with them. And immediately he began proclaiming in the, Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the Son of God. What a transformation. Just days earlier, he's saying, I'm going to arrest the Christians. I don't like what they're doing. Let's stop this movement entirely. He encounters Jesus. The scales are removed from his eyes. He gets baptized. And once that happens, he says, I want to go in the synagogue, the place where all the Jewish people met to discuss their theology. And I want to go and start to proclaim the very thing that I've been fighting against all of my life. And it says, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying he is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name, being the name of Jesus? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound back to the chief priests? See, everybody knew Paul's coming to Damascus. 
And his whole purpose in coming to Damascus is to squash this uprising. Christians were a threat to the religious people of his day. And so everybody knew, like, Paul came here as a threat to the church, and now he's hanging out with them. And he's proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God. Like, that, that doesn't add up, and, and they're amazed by this. But it says in verse 22, watch the boldness. But Saul increased all the more in strength. And confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Like imagine the boldness, imagine the tenacity. Imagine if you came into church this morning and you weren't sure about this whole Jesus thing. As a matter of fact, you're the one saying, I don't believe all this religious stuff. And you're convinced, not because of something we do, but because of what Jesus did, his death, his burial, his resurrection, that Jesus was actually who he claimed to be. So much so that when you leave, without any real formal training, you come out and say, hey, by the way, those things that I fought against before, I now believe wholeheartedly. And I want to have these discussions with you because I believe Jesus is who he really claimed to be. He increased in strength. He confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And they're blown away saying, man, all these things that I thought he's fighting against, he's for. And he's actually proving all of those things to be true. It says in verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. They didn't like that anymore. Paul, you used to be one of us. You used to be against this uprising called Christianity. And now you're for it. And now you're trying to prove the things that we've been against. So what do they do? They say, just like we did with Jesus, let's put him to death because he's become as big a threat as Jesus was earlier. Because before there was this, this small uprising, but, but we didn't know how, how strong he was going to be. But now one of us, one of the Pharisees has now gone to the other side. And, and if that word starts to get out, that could be really dangerous. And so they gather together, they plot to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They're watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. They said, listen, as soon as he comes out those gates, we're going to take him out. But his disciples, his friends, took him by night, let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So literally the disciples that are in Damascus had come to accept Paul as he really is one of us. We want to protect him. They're waiting at the gate. They want to kill him. We need to get him out of here. So let's not go through the gate. Let's lower him down in a basket so that he can escape. And he does. And he escapes to go back to Jerusalem. Verse 20, 26 here says, When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. So Paul, when he left Damascus, the disciples had finally come to believe him, but the, people who, the Jewish people there didn't like him. They wanted to kill him. He says, let me escape. Let me get to Jerusalem where I can find some other people who are believers in Jesus that now I can find that community here. And he shows up, and all the believers there are like, wait, wait a minute. Like, Paul, I've heard all about you. I know who you are. And I'm afraid to let you into our inner circle. I tried to think about this. I tried to think in a modern setting, who, who could be a Paul that we could relate to to say, man, there's no way in the world that person could ever come to Jesus because he's so anti the message of Jesus and Christianity. And I couldn't think of a good illustration. But if you could imagine a person who's most uh, attacking the Christian faith, that everyone, that everyone kind of knows and he has that reputation that he, he'll kill you literally for being a Christian. And Paul comes back to Jerusalem and the believers there are like, hey, listen, Paul, no offense. 
but we don't know if we can trust you. And there's a lot of stuff that's happening there. There's some societal conflict. There's some racial conflict. There's some uh, religious context and conflict that the believers there are saying, Paul, like, we believe in the grace of Jesus, but we're not sure the grace of Jesus is, is that rich. And so, Paul, we're not sure we can trust you. And so there's this conversation, and Paul shows up, and they're saying, we're not sure about all of this. But Barnabas, one of my favorite encouragers in all of Scripture, Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how, Damas- how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas, his name meaning encourager. Literally, Alan, could you come up here for a second? I'm going to have a hard time. I've used this illustration in the past. I've not used this illustration with someone as big as my friend Alan here. But it's my buddy Alan. <laughs> Alan's a little bit bigger than I am in some ways. Somewhere. Just saying. Um, but, but Barnabas's name literally is the son of encouragement. And the word encouragement in the original language the Bible is written in is the word parakaleo, which literally means to call alongside of someone. And so the encourager was a person who would call someone alongside of them. And there's something about when we have someone close to us that just having them close to us feels like being encouraged. There's close proximity. There's, there's a brotherhood or there's a sisterhood that's there that we feel like, man, we're in this together. Barnabas' name literally meant to be an encourager, to call alongside of them because having this type of physical presence encourages. The, do you feel encouraged right now? I do. I feel very encouraged. <laughs> Thank you so much, man. Barnabas's name simply meant I'm going to call the person alongside of me. And so the disciples in Jerusalem aren't sure, and they're like, hey, Paul, we know this history. We know how you fought against us. And Barnabas says, hold on, let me call alongside of Paul for a second. Let me start to share. He's genuinely been converted to Jesus. Here's what happened to him on the road to Damascus. And when he got to Damascus, you should have seen the way he proclaimed Jesus. Like nobody else of our circle of influence has ever proclaimed Jesus so well. He says, listen, his his experience was genuine. He's one of us now. Don't be discouraged. In fact, we should be encouraged because the person who everybody would have thought is beyond the extent of God's grace has been reached. And so Barnabas pulls him alongside and encourages him and tells the people there, this is genuinely who he is now. And it says, so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed among the Hellenists, but they also were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus, which was his hometown. But then the verse I want us to see, the verse I want us to focus on is this last verse. It says, so throughout, and so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And watch the presence of what they're doing here. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church multiplied. The church was walking with this healthy awe of God the Father. They're walking with the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, proclaiming the name of Jesus. And because of that, the church experiences the season of peace and also of multiplication. Why? Because the church says, man, we want to make sure that we're reaching people that everyone else has given up on. See, I want to be a part of a church that says there's no one beyond the reach of God's grace. And so for us to get there, we have to change the, the, the way that our mindset has been pre-programmed. 
to function. I said there's going to be a part of the message this morning that's particularly challenging, and we're about to get into it. You see, for the last couple of months, God's been stirring my heart about a lot of the division that's happening within our country. And I've talked about it, I've mentioned it from time to time. And I've said that, man, it seems like there's one topic that comes up and there's another topic. And, and everyone jumps to their political side and we argue and we debate and everybody gets mad and nothing is accomplished. And there's always going to be political discussions. And I'm not about politics at all. And this isn't a political discussion by any stretch of the imagination. But something I've seen over the course of the last couple of months about the conversation, about the rhetoric itself has changed. And I think the thing that I find most disheartening is I see a lot of Christian leaders, people that I look up to and respect, that they just continue the rhetoric. And, and they share this, whether it's through uh, messages they, they preach or whether it's through stuff they put online. And, and they share these messages that honestly looks very little like the teachings and the actions of Jesus. It's become very political in what they do, but it looks very little like the actions and teachings of Jesus. And I've seen it and it's troubled me, especially lately when a conversation of, of immigration comes up. And, and listen, I'm not smart enough to figure out the political fallout of what that all looks like. It's a tough topic for us to deal with as a country. I don't have an issue with the discussion on the political side. I have an issue with the rhetoric that's being used. That again, the rhetoric doesn't look very filled with grace and compassion that Jesus had. And I look at that and, and, and my heart was, was troubled. For, for a while, my heart's been troubled about this. Just the conversation that's been out there has been really troubling to me. And then yesterday, I was kind of hanging out. Beth's family was in town and we we're kind of hanging out. And I caught a little bit of the news, but I'm like, I don't even want to focus on that. And last night, I started to pull out my notes, look over my notes for this morning. And I was kind of starting for the first time to get online to see what happened. And I actually found a copy that the FBI is 99.5% sure that the shooter in El Paso had put this manifesto online. And, and I read the manifesto and just the, the hatred and, and, and the racism that was there that, that he would literally go down to El Paso because it was close to the border to stop immigrants from coming in. And I said, man, our, our rhetoric around this, I don't, I don't have a solution to politics and that's, that's not my place at all anyway. My place is to say, man, when we as followers of Jesus, when our rhetoric doesn't provide light into a really dark place, then we're missing our purpose entirely. I was watching this and I was reading these things and I'm thinking, man, our country right now has a huge problem. And we have to call it what it is. It's, it's sin, it's hatred, it's racism. And it's not okay. And that's uncomfortable because it forces us to, to look at this and say, man, sometimes do I, do I approach conversations with the grace and the compassion of Jesus? But these things keep happening over and over. And I went to bed last night just like, like so heavy with, with that being on my heart that 20, at least 20 people have died in that shooting. And then I wake up this morning to find out there's another one at 1 a.m. in Dayton. And just the hatred, and I have no idea even what happened there, but the hatred that's there right now. We as believers have to step in and say, how can we shine a light? 
So I want to do this right now. The message isn't quite done. I got a couple things to provide hope amidst all of this heartache that I'm experiencing right now. But I want to do something right now. I want to take just a moment of silence. And I want to do two things. Pray for the people that have been affected. But also in just the couple of minutes we have. To examine our hearts and say, Jesus, is there sometimes that things that I've done or said that they haven't aligned with what your spirit is teaching me? And if so, then remove those things that I can be part of the answer and not part of the problem. So let's just right now have a moment of silence for that. God, as a country right now, we're divided. There's political tension. There's racial tension. There's just social tension. There's, there's, there's cultural things that, that we differ on, and, and that's always going to be the case. But God, lately, for me at least, it appears to be even darker than I've ever seen in my lifetime. God, I pray that you'd remove that from our midst God, I pray that I believe fully that the only real answer to our struggle is in Jesus himself. And that it, as we who name the name Jesus, that we have to follow him, follow his actions, follow his teachings, follow the way that he dealt with other people. It doesn't mean we're always going to agree, and I think that's entirely okay. But when we don't act with grace and compassion and point people to who Jesus was, then I think that we're missing out on what your vision is for us individually and also what your vision is for us as a church. God, help us to call out things in our own lives that need to be addressed and removed. And God, also help us to call out the evil that might exist within our country, to call it like it is. And to say that when rebellion against what you have for us, God, we love you. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, here's the thing. As I was sitting there and I was contemplating all of this, and as I knew, like, we're talking about vision, and how do you transition from talking about something so heavy to say, oh, and here, by the way, here's four things I want you to think about as you leave. But but here's the thing, I think, that as we move forward over the next 10 years, that I think if the church, not just Ridgepoint Church, but since this is what we're talking about today, if the church is going to picture what God's kingdom is supposed to look like, then we're going to look a whole lot more like heaven. That there's going to be diversity, that there's going to be saying, man, everybody matters. It doesn't matter the walk you come from. It doesn't matter the background that you come from. That we want to make sure that everything that we do, that we don't get in the way of pointing others to who Jesus is. Like Jesus himself, his message is exclusive, and some people view that as offensive. We don't need to get in the way and be offensive ourselves. So our goal is simply to point people to Jesus and say, man, this is what, this is what heaven is going to look like. This is what we as a church should respond like and, and be like. And so real quick, I just want to begin this discussion. If our vision is aligned with God's plan, we're never going to be satisfied. So what does that look like for us? Now, again, these are just four ideas that I'm shooting out that I'd love for us to have a discussion about.
But here's the four things that I'm recommending we at least begin that discussion with. Number one is that imperfection is a prerequisite. That if you're perfect, don't bother coming to our church. Like, you got to figure it out. But imperfection is a prerequisite. Listen, there are people that get turned off because, well, I go to church and the church is full of hypocrites. Maybe. Maybe that's right, because we preach one thing, we don't always act that way, but, but I don't view it as being so much as being hypocritical as, listen, if I have a weight problem, I'm going to the gym because I have a weight problem. That doesn't make me hypocritical, it makes me getting the help that I need. Imperfection is a prerequisite to come to church. Number two is this, Sundays should be our loudest day of the week. Man, come on. Yes, it's okay. Like everybody, there's something about walking into church and something was drilled into us when we were young and we come in and we're like, wait a minute. Like I remember going to church and kids would run around the pews in the church and, and all the people are like, wait, 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 don't step on the pews. We don't want kids running around the church. Listen, I want kids running around the church. I want there to be life. I want there to be vitality. I want you to know that, man, when it comes to church on Sunday morning, when the band's playing, It doesn't matter if you have a good voice or if you're like me and you have a terrible voice. I'm going to sing at the loudest part of my that my lungs will allow. Church should be the loudest place. Sunday morning should be the loudest place. I said this at the beginning of the year, but I want 10, 10 a.m. at 100 Hatfield Road to be the most exciting place in Winter Haven, Auburndale all week long. So, man, if you want to respond to what God's doing in your life, If you want to sing loud, if you want to raise your hands, I want you to have the freedom to be able to enjoy what God is doing in your life and not to be like, I'm in church, I better kind of keep it toned down. No, this should be the loudest place. And understand this, sometimes God speaks loudest in silence. And so I don't want it to be fake. I don't want you to be like raising your hands and it all being a show when God's trying to say, hey, hold on, I need you to be quiet and listen for a moment. Because sometimes the loudest thing we can do is to be silent, but that Sunday morning should be the loudest place of our week. Number three, community can be uncomfortable. There's that word again. Community can be uncomfortable, but it's essential. If we're going to grow, the only way we grow, if, if, if you want to look at what your life is going to look like for the next 10 years, look at the people you're hanging out with the most. The stronger that group of people is, the stronger they're going to push you towards issues of faith and, and, and Jesus and God working in your life. And number four is this. We're our best when we're generous. If there's one thing, and I said this, I believe it was last week, if there's one thing I think the Ridgepoint Church is known at, it's being a church that is generous in the way it serves our community. I hear this all the time from people that are just, in, the, in fact, just yesterday I happened to run into Auburn High School has a new football coach. I ran into him over at Defy Lakeland. And just that we have that reputation of, man, we'll go out and, and serve whatever that looks like. We want to be there to serve. If it's building a home locally with Habitat for Humanity, if it's doing something globally with Trash Mountain Project or with Fight Ministry, we say, man, we want to be plugged in and serve. And we're at our best when we're generous in our service and in our giving. So what does that look like? See, my perspective on this was always kind of like that. But there's a story that happened to me a few years ago that kind of altered that perspective just a little bit, and it all had to do with an umbrella. See, a couple of us had gone to one of those conferences I referenced earlier. 
we're at a conference up in South Carolina, and we were there for a couple of days. And at the end, end of the second day, we had beautiful weather the whole time we were there. And at the end of the second day, like literally as we're about to dismiss, and there's a couple thousand people about to enter their cars and drive home for 8, 10, 12 hours, just as we're about to dismiss, the skies open up, and it is pouring out. And it was enough where you looked out and, and what they used to call those things, like belly washers or something like that. It was, it was one of those. You looked out and you're like, I don't know when this thing is going to end. And I really, after a couple of days, I'm ready to get home. I have a long drive, but I don't want to walk out and be wet for 12 hours. And so kind of walking out and the group that I'm with, we're trying to figure out, well, what are we going to do now? And as we're walking out, there's someone at the door with just buckets of umbrellas that they're handing out. And I was confused at first because I thought, well, I know they have a conference. A lot of times at conferences, they hand out stuff. But surely they're not planning on handing out umbrellas because that gets pretty pricey. And also, why would you plan on it raining? Like, that doesn't seem like something you'd normally hand out. So I was a little bit confused by it at first. So I walk up, and, and everyone's kind of grabbing an umbrella as they go. And they're handing out umbrellas. And it wasn't until I got to the front of the line that the guy at the front of the line gave me an umbrella. And he said, hey, here, take an umbrella. And here's what I want you to do is when you get outside... Use that umbrella while you're outside. And once you're outside and you get to your car, just go ahead and throw that umbrella down in front of your car and leave it there. And there's going to be someone on our guest service team that's going to come by and they're going to pick that umbrella up and give it to the next person. And so literally I'm walking out. I'm like, dude, this is such a great idea. Like talk about, I want to go all out, all out. I want to go out, out of my way as much as I can to make sure people feel comfortable and people are okay they said, we're going to give you an umbrella to use, throw it down by your car, and, and when you're done, we'll come back and pick it up. Why well, the fortune, I'm walking out just as one of those people on guest services is walking out. And he had a full raincoat on, he had his, his hat on, and, and here's what blew me away, and here's what changed my perspective. As I'm walking out with him, and, and he has probably the worst job of the day. Like, he's just walking back and forth, and he has an umbrella, but he's soaked his face is wet, the rain's trickling down, his shoes are, like, it's sloshy out there. He's really, really wet. He's walking out with the biggest smile on his face. He's saying, hey, guys, how was the conference? And he engages us for the next two minutes as we walk to our car. We got to our car, and I kind of got in trying to do the umbrella thing and try to get as little wet as possible. And he's like, here, I got that for you. And he took the umbrella, and he went on his way. Why? Because he said, I want to make... Now, this was a guy who had a full-time job doing something else. He took a day off from his job to come serve at this conference at his church. He said, I want to make sure that people have a good experience. Because ultimately, the experience that they have when they come to our church is going to reflect upon their view of Jesus. The experience that we give people in life. Especially once people know that we're actually followers of Jesus, which if we've been following Jesus for a while, they should know. But the experience people have when they talk to us, the experience people have when we work together, speaks volumes about what we actually believe about Jesus. Let's pray together. Man, God, I thank you so much for the way you love us. You love us with this incredible unconditional love that says even though we fail, even though we fall, even though we make mistakes, not only do you accept us, but you pursue us. That you love us all the same. 
God, I thank you for that grace that pursues us. God, first this morning, I want to pray for the person who is still in the process of being pursued. They're still in the process. They're, they're Paul before he's converted. Maybe they're not against Christianity. Maybe they're just kind of indifferent to it. But God, I believe you're right now in the process of pursuing them, of, of chasing them down and saying, man, this grace that, that they've talked about this morning, that's what you need in your life. God, for the person who's running, I pray today is the day they stop running. Today is the day they, they discover fully who Jesus is and that God, he could transform their life the way he transformed Paul's life. To give his life, even though Paul thought he knew what life was about before Jesus, when he discovered Jesus, he discovered the real purpose behind his existence. For the person still struggling with discovering what that purpose is, I pray today is the day that they discover that. That it's not about religion, it's not about the things that we do, it's entirely about Jesus. And God, for those who've, who've been there, we've made that discovery, but at times, it's, man, it's really easy to get off track. At times, it's really easy to focus on our agenda and the things that make us really comfortable. How do we grow best when we're most uncomfortable? So God, I pray that you put us individually and us collectively, collectively as a church in a season of, of marked uncomfortability. God, that we challenge each other, that we'd be equipped to be better in certain areas of our life. That God, as we prayed earlier, that in the darkness that is the world around us right now, that we would shine bright as lights, reminding people exactly who you are. God, give us a personal vision so that collectively we could accomplish our corporate vision to lead all people that we come in contact with with into a growing relationship with Jesus by being a church and church people love to attend. Let us do that individually so we can do that collectively. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.